0: Good morning. I have a question to get us going this morning. Can you be committed to God and not committed to His people? You're like, whoa, coming in hot right now. It's <laughs> starting out strong. Um, you got a cool video. I can't compete with that. All right. So, but can you be committed to God and not committed to His church? And when I say church, and we'll talk about this often this morning, I'm talking about His people. Can you be committed to God and not committed to his church. Is it a biblical reality for someone to say, Yeah, I worship God, but I don't really care about his church? A couple weeks ago, I was, uh, I was actually at the Salt Conference and uh, ran into a guy that I used to go to church with when I was serving on church staff in Baton Rouge. And uh, just haven't seen him in a long time. Super faithful guy. And I asked him about some friends of ours that we went to church with back there. And um, I said, how are they doing? He's like, yeah, they're, they're okay. They're not great. And uh, I said, what's, what's going on? He said, they don't really go to church anymore. I said, what? Like These are like super faithful people. They were leaders in our church. And I said, what's going on? And he said, they don't really feel like they need church anymore. I was just heartbroken. I was like saddened. Like these were friends of mine that had been in the trenches of ministry with me. And all of a sudden... After the last couple years, they kind of stepped away from church and then stepped away and then stepped away. And now they've gotten to the point where they're I don't really need church. Now, that's not a new reality. That's been over the course of history. Many people have said, yeah, I'm, I'm for Jesus, but I'm not really for his church. Or I have this strong desire to worship God. And I love God, but I don't really like his church. Is that a biblical reality? That's the questions that we're going to ask this morning. As we look into Hebrews chapter 13. Now some of you are going, yes, we finally made it to the last chapter of Hebrews, right? So we've been in Hebrews a long time. We were talking with our connection group the other night. And somebody said, "Okay, we're in, going in the last chapter of Hebrews. We got what, one or two more weeks? We actually have six more weeks in Hebrews. All right, so we're spending more time in Hebrews 13 than any other chapter yet. So, uh, just stay buckled up because we're in there for a while. All right, so we'll we'll go all the way up to Easter, and then I guess we'll talk about the resurrection or something there. All right, so." Uh, so six weeks in hebrews chapter 13 and uh, you'll be hebrews out maybe by the end of that all right so we're going to be <clears throat> looking at hebrews 13 verses 1 through 3 this morning all right let's start with verse 1 pretty easy let brotherly love continue let brotherly love continue now i need everybody to do one thing close your eyes really quick really quick now say that out loud let brotherly love continue continue Now, open your eyes. You just memorized scripture in like five seconds, guys. Some of you come to me. I just can't memorize scripture. You did it. All right. You're capable. You have potential. All right. So let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. Now, what's unfortunate here is we have a chapter break and a title that gets shoved in there. And it kind of, what that does, is it, it kind of separates the previous thought. Because that's not how our, Bible, or our Bibles are written that way. And that's not how the original text was written. There were no chapters and verses and titles, all right? So if you're new to Christianity, the original letters and things that were written didn't have chapters and verses and titles. So they were just read as a full letter, all right? But we get this unfortunate thing here where we separate this, let brotherly love continue from what happened previously. So let me catch you up all the way, uh, through the end of chapter 12 on what's been going on in Hebrews. So in Hebrews, you've got this group of Christians who are also Jewish. They were Jewish Christians and they were tempted over and over and over to go back to their Jewish ways, their Jewish customs. And this author is trying to say over and over and over, I want you to stay faithful. He gives warning after warning after warning to not go back, but to stay faithful. And the way he's going to motivate them to faithfulness is by talking about how awesome Jesus is, that Jesus is better, that Jesus is greater than their sacrificial system, than their priest, their temple, all of it. Jesus is better. And then you get to chapter 11 and he goes, let me tell you about some people who have lived this out and stayed faithful. And he he just goes through this big list of faithful believers throughout history. And then ultimately, he goes, in those people's lives, they lived by faith and it led to great success for some of them and great suffering for others. But in the midst of all that, God was still working in the midst of that. But then we start chapter 12 and as we get into chapter 12... We're challenged with this passage that Matthew preached about several weeks ago to not take shortcuts with our faith. Yeah, we love God, but we'll just kind of do it our way. Take the temporary fix, the quick fix. And that'll be the better way. And there's this warning not to do that. And then we get into chapter, the rest of chapter 12, and Jake preached last week, and I want to remind you of what it said in verses 26 through 28. At that time, his voice, God's voice, shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet not want, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So there's something going to be shaken up, but other things are going to remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship, With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So I want you to stay faithful. Don't go back to what you know. There's people that live by faith. But remember, you need to take God, you need to take the gospel, you need to take your worship seriously. Because our God is a consuming fire. So he's going, just take all this, please take it seriously. And as you do, be grateful for what you have. And offer acceptable worship to God. And that's where, if we just take this chapter and a title here, we can kind of separate the two. But it really begs the question is, what is acceptable worship to God? How do we offer acceptable worship to God? And then we get into verse 1 there. We let brotherly love continue. We let brotherly love continue. Now, we think of brotherly love, we think of the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. And we actually get that from this term right here, right? So uh, the word would be, let Philadelphia continue. Phileo is love. Adelphus is from the same womb. Love of the same womb, all right? Now, some of you are going, that's weird, right? <laughs> it's just weird. We need to have great affection for those of the same womb. You're like, yeah, I should love my brother and my sister and my mom and my dad but there's something so much deeper going on here than just biological and birth family who should we have great affection for who should we let this love continue for who is our family as christians who is our family jesus was confronted with this in matthew chapter 12 verses 46 through 50 that's what Jesus says. While he was still speaking, Jesus, to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. So he's got this big crowd of people and mom and his brothers are outside going, hey, we need to talk to you, Jesus. He says, but he replied to the man who told him. So there was somebody going, hey, your mom and your brothers want to talk to you. He replies to that man, who is my mother? Not a proud moment for Jesus' mom right there, right? Who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward all his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So there's something so much deeper going on than biological birth family here. He's going, yeah, what are you talking about? Like, yeah, you're trying to say like, my mom wants me and my brothers want me. And he's not trying to deny them. He was trying to prove a bigger point, right? That your spiritual family is so much greater. And it reminds me of John chapter 3. And in John chapter 3, Jesus is confronted by this religious leader. Not really confronted. God comes to him at night because he's kind of embarrassed and doesn't want to be caught by the other religious leaders. And he comes to him, and it's got this guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and basically wants to figure out how can he inherit eternal life and be a part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus gives him this weird answer. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Born again? Nicodemus is like, whoa. I don't know how that works. Like, I I know how I was born, but how do I get reborn, right? But it's this idea that we're born of the flesh, but now we've got to be born of the spirit. And so when we're born of the spirit and we have brotherly love of the same womb, we're to love those that are born into this spiritual family. How do we offer acceptable worship to God? We love our church well. We love the people of God well. He says we need to let it continue. So it's something that's already there. That love is there. You don't have to invent it. You don't have to generate this kind of love. You see, because it happens as an overflow of the gospel. First Peter 1:22 says this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. So obedience to the truth really is pointing to the gospel from other parts of 1 Peter. So your soul has been purified and cleansed because of the gospel. It says, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So when you trust in Christ and your soul is purified, you begin to, you gain this love, this sincere love that you extend to your brothers and sisters in Christ. So, how do we let this brotherly love continue? It's an overflow of the gospel. We've got it. We just got to keep it going. You see, all throughout Hebrews, he's talking about endurance, perseverance, and the same thing holds true here. I want you to let this brotherly love continue to remain. When things get shaken, from chapter 12, let brotherly love remain, let brotherly love continue. Why wouldn't brotherly love continue? Guys, the enemy of brotherly love is self. Self-preservation, selfishness, self-seeking, self-service, putting you first. Now some of you go, wait a second, that didn't, that, that didn't seem right. Like it, I'm supposed to take care of me first, right? I was on my wife's uh, Facebook the other day because I don't have it, but... Um, I'm thankful for that. Um, Some of you, maybe should do the same thing. Um, This uh, person made this comment. I thought putting myself last all the time was the best way to love my kiddos, partner, even my pets. But the reality is, when you put yourself and your health first, not only do you deserve it because you're awesome, but the people you love get the best version of you. Some of you go, yeah, that sounds great. That's not the way of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said in Mark chapter nine. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, his disciples, because they had been on this journey, and he's on this journey, and he may have been walking ahead, and they're kind of behind him, and they're having this argument. He knows what they're already talking about, but he says, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent because they were embarrassed. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Brotherly love in the kingdom doesn't put yourself first. It puts other people first. So this idea of like, I've got to take care of my mental health and serve myself over and over and just make myself This success, guys, that's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God says, no, I'm going to put Jesus first. I'm going to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. I'm going to be a servant of all. Because why? Jesus, he was this example. This example of Jesus didn't come to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Now, I'm not saying don't take care of yourself. But if you're trying to prop yourself up to build yourself some greatness and success, that's not the way of Jesus. That's not the way of the kingdom of God. And is the enemy of brotherly love, because we don't put our self on display, we don't make decisions just based on what's good for us. We go... They are brothers and sisters who need support and need love. And guys, this only happens because it's been produced by faith. Galatians 5 talks about this. And it happens because of a work of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 For the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on. A fruit of the Spirit is love. When you've been changed and transformed by the Spirit of God... There is love that you have. And don't just hoard it for yourself and go, let, let me come up with the best me. No, let me extend it to other people. So can you worship God and not care for His people? No. You can't do it. In fact, this is what I want you to know this morning, your worship of God is shown in the way you love His church. Your worship of God is shown in the way you love His church. Your worship is demonstrated in the way that you love your spiritual family. When you care for the church and you care about his people, it is acceptable worship to God. So what does this practically look at? That's what we're going to get in the next two verses. And the practicality of it is a little strange. We go, oh, yeah, we need to just serve people. But he gives really two practical things here. And that's what all of chapter 13 is. It is a lot of practical wisdom. Through the first 12 chapters of Hebrews, you get all this deep doctrine and great theology. And now he's going, I'm going to take all that general doctrine and I'm going to make it specific, practical things and way to live out this life of faith. So be motivated that Jesus is better. Live this life of faith. Now here's how to do it. So let's go to these practical things. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. See so what you're getting at here, this practicality, is, reminds me of this story of, there was a thunderstorm, some of you may have had kids like this uh, last night even, thunderstorms are happening, your kids are a little nervous, there was this story of this girl and she's frightened. So her dad comes in and dad's hugging her and trying to comfort her and encourage her, hey, it's going to be okay. God loves you. He cares about you. Everything's going to be okay. And she just looks at her dad and she's like, I get it. I know God loves me, but right now I need somebody to love me that has skin. <laughs> like I need somebody to know, like there's somebody with skin on that loves me, that cares about me. I get the theological truth. That's what we're getting into here. I, I know God loves me. That's what he's trying to tell the Hebrews. I know that. I know Jesus is better. And he showed his love by dying on the cross. But how are we going to express that love to his church? First thing he says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. As Christians, we must care about hospitality. In a very general, basic sense hospitality is welcoming other people into your home and into your life. Welcoming other people into your home and into your life. This was a great virtue of the Jews. Always has been. So if you're a Jewish Christian, you know, yeah, that's my roots. Like, we care for people. We welcome people into our homes. It's an obedience to God's will for us to show hospitality. And it's important all throughout the New Testament. Even if you say you want to be an elder of a church... One of the qualifications of an elder is to show hospitality. 1 Timothy 3.2, also Titus 1.8. You can look up those later. First Timothy 3, 2, Titus 1 Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.8. So if you want to be an elder of a church, you got to show hospitality. You go, okay, that's great for, for elders, but that's not really for me to show hospitality. In fact, in Romans 12.13, we find out that it's for all believers. All those that have been shown the mercy of God. To show hospitality and extend hospitality of others. Okay, I get it. It's for, for elders. Okay, it's for all believers. But I'm not like an extroverted person. It doesn't give that qualification here, guys. It's for all people to show hospitality. Now, that doesn't mean you need to have to throw a party every day at your house by any stretch of the imagination, all right? You should spend your money other ways, Right? But this is not this. Oh, I'm just introverted. Guys, I'm actually really introverted. Like if this group is talking after the service, I'm totally cool being down here with two people. Not like talking to everybody. So how God's wired me. But that doesn't mean I shouldn't have people in my home. Like if we're going to let brotherly love continue. We show hospitality. Then It says. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. You're like, whoa, I was okay, you know, with this whole, like, showing hospitality. Now I'm supposed to show it to strangers. Now before you get all worked up there, let me help you understand the context. This is not like just talking about the random random person that you just saw on the street. Hey, you want to come over, come over tonight? If God says do that, you should do it and, and be obedient. But the context here is talking about traveling missionaries. People coming from other churches and they would go around. They're not staying in hotels. And they would travel around to different cities and different communities. And when they got to different communities and they needed a night's rest, they went and found Christians. And the context here is saying, hey, welcome those people into your home. Take care of them. Care for their needs. So care for Christians from other churches and other communities. Practically, care for the people in your own church. In Third John, this is how John would say this. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love. So they came back to John and said, let me tell you about how loving this church is. So who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, Jesus accepting nothing from the Gentiles and there being unbelievers. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers in the truth. So you had these missionaries going out to other parts of the world and when they would go, they were accepted in by other Christians and other communities. And he goes, you're doing a great thing because they've gone out for Jesus and they're not taking support from people that don't know Jesus and they need you and you've done a great job with it. So he's commending them for it. Because what does biblical hospitality look like? What does it look like to be hospitable in a gospel sense? When I talk about biblical hospitality, what I'm not talking about is just entertainment. That we're not looking to prove ourselves by throwing a party. We're not just looking for a party. We're not looking to please other people. Because oftentimes entertainment says, yeah, I'm going to do this so I get something in return. That's not biblical hospitality. You see, biblical hospitality doesn't look to please and prove yourself. Biblical hospitality looks to be a blessing, looks to serve, looks to welcome others, to advance the kingdom, not to get something in return. That's biblical hospitality. But there's maybe some of you in the room, you go, well, my my home is not right to have people in. There's no stipulation that your home has to be perfect and nice and neat and well kept here all right might be helpful, but that's not where you, that's not the ideal you know once I get my house cleaned up, then I'll welcome people into my home no like that's just an excuse like when you come to my house, you're probably going to step on a Lego at some point like they got little boys they like Legos and they don't always put them where they're supposed to go. I'm sorry, like wear your shoes inside right but It doesn't have to look all nice and neat and fit perfectly. Just do it. Just welcome and show hospitality to people. Will it be an inconvenience? Sometimes, yeah, it will. But we're called to let brotherly love continue. When we were first married, we were in our first home, and uh, we found out that the neighborhood we lived in had a little over 30 kids in it. It was a small little neighborhood. 30 kids, and only 5 of them had a dad in the home. And we had no idea. And so we were like, man, how can we love these kids well? So we would just say, like, come in, come inside. We'll feed you. You can play. You can do whatever inside. We don't have kids. We didn't know what to do. Like, we were clueless. So come in, though. One Friday afternoon, we would get a knock every Friday because I was off when the kids got home from school. They would knock on the door. And there were many days that we were like, oh, no. The kids again. Like, I just want to, like, watch this TV show. I'm probably my feet up. But, Never once did we regret when those kids left. And one Friday, I remember there were 13 kids in our home. We were clueless. We didn't know what to do. There's kids playing Xbox over here and watching videos, and Erica's painting fingernails with the girls. And at one point, fingernail uh, polish remover got spilled on the table, and it like it, it, it takes the wood real quick, the, you know, not good for it. And I remember I got I got so upset. What are you doing? Like pick it up. Like you now, what am I doing? Like We have people that don't know Jesus in our home. Like if our table gets messed up, it is totally okay. Because down the road, Erica got to share the gospel with one of those girls, not on that day, but another day, and she trusted in Christ. Is having a messed up table worth that? You better believe it. But hospitality will inconvenience you. But if we're to let brotherly love continue, we do this. This is acceptable worship to God. Your home is one of your greatest ministry assets. I'm not talking about just because you have a house. If you have an apartment, your home is one of your greatest ministry assets. But we go, but my home is my happy place. It's my refuge. It's where I get to come be me. Guys, if your home is your refuge, it's an idol because God is your refuge and strength. And we've got to repent from idolizing our homes. If you're going, I need, I need to find refuge and strength somewhere. I'm not saying you can't be at your home by yourself. You don't have to have people in your home all the time. But if you go, I'm going to just be in my home to find my rest at the expense of welcoming other people in, it's sinful. You've taken something that's really good and you've turned it into something That is superior, and the only superior thing is Jesus. I love that there are Veritas people that do this all the time. Our connection groups, very few of them meet at this building. Most of them meet in homes. And I can guarantee you if I ask connection group leaders or people that host those events, is it ever an inconvenience for you to have people in their homes? They will say, yes, 100% it's an inconvenience. But it's worth it every single time. So what's the result of biblical hospitality? One, it's an overflow of the gospel. Because why? Because at one point in our lives, we were strangers and enemies to God. But because of what Jesus did, he welcomed us in and adopted us as his own family. And he said, come into my family. Because of what Jesus did on the cross. What a beautiful picture of the gospel. The most hospitable God ever that says, Welcome, come be a part. I'm going to treat you as my own. What a way to put the gospel on display by welcoming people in your home. But then there's this kind of added outcome that could happen that we see here. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Some of you are like, Man, I had... I've had great people into my home, but they weren't angels. I can tell you that right now. (laughs) But there's this idea that for these Jewish Christians, their minds would immediately go back to Father Abraham. Abraham in Genesis 18, he has this tent, not this well put together two story home. He has a tent and he welcomes some strangers in and guess who those strangers end up being? God and two angels. Same thing happens with Lot in Genesis 19. Similar thing happened in Judges with Gideon and Manoah. So their mind immediately goes back to, yeah, we're not going after a, the, the motivation, motivating factor for hospitality isn't that you might entertain an angel. But that might be an outcome that happens. Because angels are a New Testament reality. Not some weird thing. How do they all function? How does that work? We don't know fully. We know a little bit in Scripture. But this idea that, your hospitality may have far greater impact than you even realize. Such a small act of welcoming somebody into your home may have an incredible impact. So how do we let this brotherly love continue? We show hospitality to strangers. And then secondly in verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Now the context here is not just a random prisoner. The context are random people being mistreated. The context, again, is brotherly love. There were people in prison in this context, not because they had committed a crime. They were in prison because of their faith. They were being mistreated because of their faith. So he's going, there are people among you in your spiritual family, Hebrews, that are now in prison and being mistreated. And if you're going to care for them, you need to remember them. Don't forget them, which is hard sometimes, out of sight, out of mind, right? But he's going, as a believer, if you're going to let brotherly love continue, you need to remember those people the ones in prison, the ones mistreated. It's already happened in chapter 10. We saw that they were caring for each other when they were mistreated in chapter 11. Now, for some of you in this room, you're like, I don't, how am I supposed to practically do that here in America? I don't know anybody in prison because of their faith. Praise God, right? That's amazing. We live in that kind of country. Because that's not the reality for many of our brothers and sisters. Part of the capital C church, not the little C church. That's not the reality for many of them. I don't give stats a lot in sermons, but these are pretty strong here. Christians around the world just last year. Over 360 million Christians living in places where they experienced big levels of persecution and discrimination. 5,898 Christians were killed last year for their faith. 5,110 churches or Christian buildings were attacked last year. 6,175 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. 3,829 Christians were abducted last year. Now I know when we see this again as Americans, we're like, "How do I do this?" If you're one of these people and you're still alive, don't you want to know that brotherly love continues, guys? I don't know how long it will be before Christians in America are put in prison. I have no clue. I hope it's way, way, way past my lifetime, my kid's lifetime, my grandkids' lifetime. But there are people in this country that are ridiculed for their faith. I was talking to somebody in a connection group the other day and they said, we're scared every, all the time. I'm scared all the time that I'm going to lose my job because I'm bold about my faith at work. Because on the day that that lady ever gets fired from her job, she should be the most encouraged person ever by our church. You did the right thing. You stood up for Jesus. You proclaimed Jesus. You didn't do anything wrong. And we got your back. We're for you. We're going to support you. You don't have a paycheck coming in. We'll take care of the mortgage payment. This month, next month, however long it happens. That's the kind of church we want to be, Veritas. Veritas. When a teenager is ridiculed for their faith at school, they should be the most encouraged teenager by our church. That's who we want to be. So he says, remember these people as if you were in prison with them. Remember remember them as if you were there with them. Sympathize with them. Identify with them. But see, the temptation for these Jewish Christians were just simply, no, I want to avoid the suffering and go back to my Jewish roots. But he's going, no, I want you to identify with the suffering, those that are suffering in prison. I want you to identify with them so that they know they've got people to support them. When somebody in our body hurts, we hurt. When somebody in our body suffers, we suffer. The principle here is we've got to remember Christians who are suffering innocently. Remember Christians who are suffering innocently. If we're going to love Christ's church, we've got to do it by showing hospitality to strangers and remembering the sufferers. It says, since you are also in the body. He goes, you're a part of this body too, this body of Christ. Remember in 1 Corinthians 12, we talked about how some of us are hands and some of us are feet. Some of us are ears. Some of us are mouths. Like, We need all those parts of the body to work like God intended us to work. He goes, remember these people because you are part of the body also. You're part of the body. And because you're part of the body, you may very well be in this same spot one day too. And you're going to want brotherly love to continue. Guys, acceptable worship is demonstrated in the way that we love Christ's church. Now when we read this just in plain without understanding and knowing the context, it's easy to go, "Yeah, this this text is all about outward ministry. It's all about like bringing the homeless into your home and going and doing prison ministry." And guys, those things aren't wrong. There are other parts in scripture where it addresses those things. But we've created this false dichotomy in our world where it's like, "Oh, you're an inward-focused church, you're an outward-focused church." That dichotomy doesn't exist in the scriptures. It's a both and, not an either or. We care deeply for those in the body. And we proclaim Jesus to the ends of the earth. But the context here in Hebrews 13 is going, I want you to offer acceptable worship to God. And the acceptable worship here in this specific text is to care deeply for the church and let brotherly love continue. If you just are focused outward and everything's outward, and you're like, I'll deal with the church one day. Because that's, if you loving the outward world comes at the expense of you loving the church, you're not obeying the scriptures. Now I'm sure not saying, please don't hear me say that we should not love the world. But we need to love deeply our church, our spiritual family. Paul even said it this way in Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Can you be committed to God and not committed to his people? According to the scriptures, no. You can't. In fact, your commitment to God is demonstrated in how you love his people. So how do we do this practically? can't get much more practical than already, uh, the scriptures already were. But invite somebody new into your home. Invite... There's How many of you college students would like a good meal? Alright, there you go. Alright, lots of it. Meet a college student. Invite them into your home. You're like, they're a stranger. Yeah, that's exactly what this says. Do. Look around you right now. I'm guessing you don't know every person sitting around you. Maybe you should get to know somebody. Invite them into your home. Show hospitality. So invite somebody new into your home. Remind yourself of the persecuted church. It's easy for us in America to just forget it, but remember them. And then thirdly, write an encouraging note to somebody who's suffering because of their faith. Who can you encourage this week, this suffering because of their faith? Guys, this can't be lived out in an online church. You can't show hospitality to somebody that lives on the other side of the world in a regular rhythm. I'm super thankful for online church over the past couple years. Super thankful. My mom's super thankful. She watches every week, right? But she lives in South Carolina and she has a local church that she's a part of. If online church goes away, my mom will be fine. If we're to live out letting brotherly love continue... We've got to be with his people. We have to be with his people. And if we're going to let live this out, we've got to be a part of the family. Again, at one point, we were enemies of God, strangers to God, imprisoned by our own sin. But because of Jesus, he welcomed us into his family. And maybe you're like, I don't know how to let brotherly love continue this morning because... I've never trusted in Christ. and what a day to trust in Christ. To be welcomed into His family. We would love to talk to you after the service down front. We would love for you guys to do that. Because we want to be that kind of family who loves each other deeply. In John chapter 13, I'll finish with this. Jesus says, I'm going to show you the full extent of my love. And that was kind of foreshadowing because he was about to give up his life on the cross. But in the immediate context, he gets down on his hands and knees with a towel on a basin and he washes his disciples' feet. The Savior of the world washes his disciples' feet. And at the end of that, in verses 34 and 35, he says, By this, all men will know you're my disciples, so people will know that you follow Jesus by the love that you have one for another. By the way that you love each other, Jesus said, by the way that you serve each other, people are going to go, something's distinct and different about you Christians. And you get to go, yes, Jesus, who served us when we were dead and imprisoned. That's Jesus. Let me tell you about him, Guys, that's the kind of church we want to be that puts Jesus on display to the world by the way that we love each other. Let's pray. God, we want to be that church that loves each other really, 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 really well. But God, that's... It's hard. Because people aren't like us. Different personalities. We come from different places. Lord, but we're so thankful for your spirit that allows us to love and be joyful and kind and gentle and faithful self-control and good. Lord, please help us. Please help us to be a church that allows brotherly love to continue. And as it does, may we get to proclaim you to the ends of the earth, Father. Among those who are trying to do that and are persecuted. God, thank you for our brothers and sisters around the world who are living this out when it's way harder to live out than it is for us. God, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.